Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I am Michael Kingswood, retired naval officer, Christian, dad, and writer extraordinaire. I mostly focus on science fiction and fantasy, but I've been known to write just about everything under the sun, including the occasional romance. The purpose of this podcast is to share my stories with you, the reading slash listening public. So sit back and relax, because I'm going to tell you the story. Hey friends, it's Michael Kingswood. It's story time, and it's Saturday. It's actually Saturday evening as I'm finishing this up. It's going to be put out a little bit late tonight, but that's okay. It's still Saturday, and it's story Saturday. And we're reading story number 25 from Stories from the Great Challenge. As you recall, this is the story a week challenge that I did a couple of years ago now. 52 stories in the course of a year, and we're going through them once a week here for your listening pleasure. Uh, number 25 is Playing for Scraps. This is a science fiction story. It's set on Gilroy Station in the Korathi Empire. The Korathi Empire is a political entity that I created in my novella, uh, Veritas Morte. And I've written some other stories set in the Korathi Empire and its neighbors. And I'm going to be continuing to... Uh, write more stories of them because it's a cool setting and it also is in the same universe as this space navy book that i'm finishing up now that uh, campaign season's done um so we've seen a lot more of the Korathi empire uh the first book uh, veritas morte deals with crown prince lucian bandemir and a plot to assassinate him and his father uh the conceit for the whole thing was came from voltron I don't know if you remember Voltron and Prince Lotor, the son of the evil emperor. And of course, they're both evil, evil guys. Ooh, we love being evil. But what if the crown prince didn't realize his empire was the evil empire? Because he wouldn't, right? Um, so I riffed off of that and then took it in its own direction. So I like that story and I like that setting, so I've written more. Uh, this is not set in that empire, but it's tangential at best to the other goings-on of the other stories that have written uh, about it. It's just there. Um, so, it's cool. It's about a private investigator who has to help out a musician who's in trouble with some criminal elements. I wrote it. I read it. It's awesome. Let's get to it. I'll talk to you after the story's done. I was just tallying up the invoice for my latest case. An easy job for a little old lady down on the station's third level when Jason conned for entrance to my office. I'd known Jason for a couple years, and when he conned, the image of his face popped into the upper left corner of my vision, courtesy of the database implants that I'd installed last year. Made forgetting names and faces a thing of the past, but sometimes it could also be annoying, like now, when I had been busily deciding whether to charge Mrs. Garant for the gratuity I'd had to slip the security guy, or just let it slide. So I tried to ignore Jason's calm. Maybe he'd go away. But he calmed a second time a few seconds later. Screw it. I'd let her pass on this one. Swiping the gratuity entry out of the invoice, I made a sweeping downward gesture with my left hand and the hollow of the invoice file compressed down into the stainless steel top of my desk and winked out. My office was not what you would call spacious. Just a few meters on a side, barely larger than a closet in some people's homes. But I owned it right out or as much as anyone could really own anything on a space station that was owned entirely by the government of the Korathi Empire, and I made it my own little slice of, well, not quite heaven, but at least something that worked for me. 
The desk was directly in front of the door, and L-shaped, so I could swivel my chair to the right to face the little brown and white sofa where Clance could sit without exposing myself. It also gave me plenty of legroom, and plenty of room to conceal a couple of pieces on either side of the L, so one was always easy at hand, whichever way I was facing. Just in case. Behind the desk, or to the right if I was facing the couch, I had my file cabinets and a vid screen, and just to the right of those was a little blue sliding door that led to my back room, which had just enough space for a bed sized for one, two if you really like snuggling, and a head compartment that I had modified to include a little shower apparatus in it. I even had a real potted plant in the corner next to the client's couch, which opened flower buds from time to time throughout the year, giving the place a more organic fragrance than the typical after-sense of the atmosphere processors on the engineering levels lent it. It was pretty much everything a guy could need or want, except for maybe a kitchen, but I'd never been a good cook anyway, and Tamara's place down the corridor had the best chef on the station, so screw it. The latest con from Jason was still registering on my implants. I keyed up the security camera I had mounted in the corridor above my door. On the vid screen above my file cabinets, live video from outside sprang to life and I saw Jason standing there, his head swinging left and right as he shifted from foot to foot, noticeably. Either he really needed to use the head, or he was damn nervous about something. Great. Sighing, I slipped my hand beneath my desk to the button that controlled the door's locking mechanism and turned to face front. The lock snapped open with an audible clack, and outside a quick buzzer would have sounded. A second later, Jason had the door pushed open and he slipped inside, closing it as soon as he was through. Jason was a little bit taller than me, but skinny. The kind of guy who'd never become acquainted with the weight room, but also had a metabolism that kept him lean. He was lightly tanned, with long, thick black hair and deep brown eyes, and he wore an olive green jumpsuit and mag boots. A black faux leather belt cinched the jumpsuit around his waist, and the thigh pocket of his left leg bulged with something or other. Hey, Suresh, Jason said his eyes glancing from me to the couch to the door to my back room and back in a frenetic scan that confirmed it in my mind. He was scared. Jason, I said, keeping my voice calm and gesturing at the couch for him to sit. How's the recording coming? Jason blinked. Then some of his nervous energy faded as my comment changed his thoughts for a second, and he flashed a hint of a smile. He worked up on the cargo docks, but he'd always fancied himself a musician, and he had a side gig playing his keyboard and singing in the various bars and clubs that scattered the station. From what I'd heard, he made all right money doing that, and he had developed a bit of a following. He'd given the station a bit of a stir a couple months back, though, when he launched a campaign to help fund his first privately recorded and distributed album. He'd put up advertisement messages on the various boards, sent out emails to everyone he knew, pimped it at his gigs, said he had the distribution all lined up, just needed the money for recording and the production. He'd offered a bunch of perks and goodies for people who contributed, depending on how much they gave. It was the talk of the station for a few weeks. Hell, I'd even contributed a little bit myself, just enough to get the album, not for anything else. I figured, what the hell? He and I weren't exactly friends, but I didn't think ill of him. And he could play the keyboard pretty well, so why not help a brother out? Then from what I'd heard, he'd crushed it, brought in far more money than he asked for. Now he just had to produce the thing. Jason sank onto my couch, and the smile he had started to wear slipped away. He slashed forward, resting his elbows on his knees and clasping his hands together. His eyes lowered to look down at his hands, and he shook his head. Need your help. I need to off the station without anyone knowing I've gone. I wasn't entirely surprised he was in trouble, based on how he was acting, but I was surprised by the request. I cocked an eyebrow at him. Why? He looked back up at me and blanched when his eyes met mine. I'm in trouble, man. No kidding. He flinched slightly at my tone. I didn't even try to hold the sarcasm back. But after a second, he shrugged slightly, and his eyes fell again. 
I owe some people money. I thought I'd make enough in the album thing to be able to get the album produced and pay them back, and it would be all good, but he shook his head. My other eyebrow rose to meet its fellow on my forehead. You took in about double what you asked for. Yeah, well, about that. Oh, for the love of... I shook my head in disgust. Why, did you blow it all on strippers and dust? What? He jerked upright, looking at me with an expression like i just called his sister a slut. No! So what's the problem? Jason's nostrils flared. I'd pissed him off by the dust comments, apparently. But at least he wasn't talking in a self-pitying mumble anymore. The problem is that production costs are more than I thought. I blew through most of the money I got, and the album's only two-thirds done. And I still have to pay for the extras that I offered to the highest-tier backers. And then this morning, Carpenter's men told me he wants his money now. Carpenter? You owe money to Carpenter? If that were the case, it was bad. Very bad. You didn't mess with Carpenter. Not in Gilroy Station. Hell, not any place within two jumps of this system. Jason nodded, some of his anger leaving, as he considered his predicaments again, and not my accusation. How much do you owe him? Four thousand. But I heard you brought in almost ten thousand from your fundraiser. How much do you have left? Jason just looked at me, silently. I sat there for a long several moments, considering. He really was in big trouble. It was hard to tell which direction was worse. On the one hand, he had taken a lot of money from people living on the station, making promises to them that he apparently was now not going to be able to deliver on. I'm not a lawyer, but to me that sounded like fraud. On the other hand, he owed Carpenter the equivalent of four months' wages for a guy who worked the docks, like Jason did. A man could get thrown in prison for fraud for a long time, but not paying Carpenter? That would get you spaced. Okay, no question which was worse after all. I shook my head. Should have paid him off first. Jason snorted agreement. Then after a second, he shook his head. No, I was going to pay him as soon as the album was out and I started getting royalties. No problem at all. I just looked at him. Even after all that had happened, he couldn't actually be that dumb to continue justifying like this. But maybe he was because he looked back at me defiantly, like he really thought he'd done nothing wrong. I sighed. So you want me to smuggle you off the station? Shaking my head, I said, What is it you think that I'd do, Jason? What do you mean? You're a private dick. I nodded. Yeah, I do investigation. If I help you run out on your contributors, I'm an accessory to fraud and maybe larceny. I don't do crime. You want crime, you go to Carpenter. You want an honest investigation within the law? Well, not always within the law, to be honest, but close enough for deniability, and he didn't have to hear that right this moment. You come to me. Carpenter? Jason looked taken aback, but I can't. Right, you can't go to him and ask for help getting away from him. I blew my breath out in a soft whistle and leaned back in my chair. Sounds like you're screwed. Jason frowned, his eyelids fluttering in a quick succession of blinks as he processed what I just said. You know what the worst part is? He shook his head. The worst part is I won't get my copy of your album. He blinked, cocked his head to the side. Then he grinned as the import of what I'd said raced as quickly as anything could race through his head. Yeah, I didn't know you backed me. Thanks, man. I just stared at him, narrowing my eyes into the look that I knew from experience made me appear a very dangerous fellow to cross. And not just as an act, either. I couldn't believe what he just said. He didn't even know who had backed him? How in the hell could he think he would fulfill... I took in a long, deep breath to calm myself, held it, then let it out slowly. Jason, meanwhile, had lost his momentary smile. He'd actually recoiled deeper into the couch from the look I'd given him. Right that second, he looked like he wanted nothing more than to bolt out of my office. Too bad for him that my door locked automatically when it shut. I let him squirm for a few seconds as I considered the situation. I could just tell him to get out, and let him take his chances with the carpenter, or with the law. It would serve him right. But you know what? 
I really did think he played that keyboard well, and I wanted to hear his album. And while he wasn't exactly a friend, I didn't really want him to end up being spaced either, or sent to prison. Though let's be honest, he would never live to go to prison. And maybe I could work a little something for myself into this too. I nodded to myself and stood up from my desk chair. Jason made to get up as well, but I put up a hand and he froze in place. Okay, I said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to stay here. I'm going to go talk to Carpenter. Carpenter? Jason sounded shocked, but shut up. I reached down beneath my desk and pulled out the rightmost of the guns I'd kept concealed there. Jason's eyes widened when he saw it, but when I just lifted up my shirt and tucked the weapon into the holster I always wore on my right hip, he relaxed again. A bit. Okay, I'm going to try to catch you a deal. Probably take an hour or two, but if you're not here when I get back, the deal's off. His eyes flicked from the spot on my hip where the gun was now hidden beneath my shirt to my face, and he nodded. Then his eyes moved to my desk. Was he wondering what else I had stored there? Maybe money? Well, I did have a stash of cash in here, but he'd never find it in its hiding spot, and as for the other gun, the mechanism locking in place beneath the left side of my desk was key to my DNA and wouldn't unlock for anyone else, so he could muck about with it all day and never get to the piece. Still, it couldn't hurt to lay down the rules plainly for him, since apparently he wasn't all that smart. Don't touch anything while I'm gone. You can watch the televid and use the head. Nothing else. Got it? He nodded again. Okay, I'll be back soon. With that, I headed toward the door and the station beyond. I've worked with Carpenter before. I didn't know if Jason knew that or not, but it didn't matter. No one who does business in my field on Gilroy Station could have avoided crossing paths with Carpenter. In my case, I dealt with him twice before, on behalf of clients, and again for a job he wanted done. Mostly above board, and not at all unscrupulous. He knows my boundaries, and has never even attempted to get me to cross them. So we knew each other. Wouldn't say we were friends, but there was at least a healthy professional respect there. I was counting on that to give me an in to try to help Jason out of his fix, and as I rode up the lift to the first deck where Carpenter kept his offices, I went over my pitch to him at least four times. The first deck was much different than the lower levels where I resided. The corridors were broader, the overheads higher, the LED lighting more closely approximating the natural light from a G5 star. Even the grav plates in the deck seemed more uniform, but maybe that was just an illusion caused by all the other niceties that were so much better here than what I was used to. Carpenter's offices were opulent, as fitted a man of his stature. Officially, he was CEO of the system's largest shipping firm, and had branched out into real estate development and domestic manufacturing. But of course, that was just a front to conceal and assist his real business. Still, as I strode into Carpenter's corporate offices, I couldn't help but feel like I was being warmly welcomed into a peaceful and honest realm of commerce, bent only toward doing its best for the benefit of its clients and shareholders both. But that only lasted a few seconds. Then I began glancing over my shoulder, looking for the knife that was headed toward my back. Or the bullet... Since I was known there, I managed to skirt past the initial layer of receptionists and lackeys, but I couldn't just waltz past Justine, Carpenter's executive assistant. She was mid-forties and still attractive, with lush blonde hair that had to have been dyed to conceal growing gray, rolling past her shoulders and a shapely figure that didn't at all reflect the five children that I knew for a fact she had borne for her husband. As I approached, her sparkling green eyes narrowed and she smiled at me cautiously, shifting so that the green blouse she wore closed a bit at the collar almost like she expected me to try to steal a glimpse or something. Mr. Ramantha, she said by greeting, and arched an eyebrow at me. Sitting there behind the thick mahogany desk that marked her domain, she made no qualms about who was in charge in this place. 
I don't believe you have an appointment. I grinned at her, trying for the charming gamut. Just wanted to see you again. The other eyebrow rose joined the first, and her lips compressed. So much for the charming bit. I cleared my throat. I need to see him. It's an urgent matter concerning Jason Ramsey. She just looked at me for a few seconds, and I could see the wheels turning in her head. On the one hand, Carpenter did not like to be disturbed without an appointment. On the other hand, she knew I had done jobs for him in the past, and her eye had twitched slightly when I said Jason's name. She knew Carpenter was interested in him, if not the exact reason why he was. Justine nodded. One moment. Then her eyes went unfocused. I recognized the expression of a person conducting subvocal comms over implants. She was communicating directly with her boss. A moment later, she blinked and her eyes turned back to meet mine. She nodded slightly. Mr. Carpenter will see you. She gestured toward the wide, faux-oak double doors to the left of her desk, which led into Carpenter's inner sanctum. Smiling at her, I nodded, then proceeded toward the doors. I saw her left hand drift beneath her desk, and a buzz and a click announced a lock disengaging. Then the door swung open inwardly. Carpenter's office was five or six times the size of mine, and paneled in what was either very good faux-oak or the real thing. Either way, it would have cost a small fortune to bring it up here onto the station. The left-hand wall as I entered was dominated by bookshelves that were crammed full of hardback tomes beyond immediate count, yet another indication of the man's wealth even if the paneling hadn't been enough. His desk was broad and deep, made of darkly stained wood, and faced the doors before a wall of pure, transparent plasteel that looked over the starscape beyond the way a planet-bound executives would look out over a picturesque countryside. A trio of upholstered stuffed chairs sat around a coffee table that was stained the same shade as Carpenter's desk between the doors and the desk. To the right a bit, a more informal place to meet than in the two similarly upholstered chairs sitting directly across his desk and facing it. Carpenter himself was a man who, unlike Jason, had been inside the weight room before. Many times. Word was he had played rugby in his youth, and though he was in his fifties now and his belly strained the buttons of the gray pinstripe suit coat that he wore over a white shirt and a red tie, he still had the broad shoulders and barrel chest that spoke of many years of exertion. His face was round, he had closely cut yellow-brown hair and hazel eyes, and the lines around his mouth suggested a man who liked to smile and laugh. When I stepped in, he rose from the chair he was sitting in, one of those surrounding the round table, and placed the book he had been reading down atop the table. Suresh, he said, extending his hand to me, nice to see you again. I knew from experience that his grip was beyond firm. Every time I shook hands with him, I had to thrust my hand as deeply into his as possible, or my fingers would be crushed to the point of breaking. I did the same this time, inwardly bracing myself against the pain in case I didn't go far enough before he began to squeeze. Mr. Carpenter, I said simply, and squeezed as the vice grip came down around my fingers. I didn't let my relief show when I realized I had indeed pushed far enough but I could see from the amused twinkle in Carpenter's eyes that he knew what I was thinking. Still, he had the grace not to say it. He just released my hand and gestured toward the other chair at the table. As I settled down into the proffered chair, he spoke again. So you're here on behalf of Mr. Ramsey, he said, shaking his head. Wish I could say I wasn't upset with him. Yes, well, I said, and leaned forward toward him as he also sat. You have reason. I'm here to see if we can work out an arrangement. I don't see what's to work out. He raised a lot of money with his fundraiser. He needs to pay what he owes. That was true enough. But... I don't disagree. But there's more to the situation that makes things... complicated. Carpenter raised an eyebrow, and I laid it out for him. When I had finished, he leaned back in his chair and blew out a long, exasperated breath. You have got to be kidding me. I shook my head. I wish I was. So you mean to tell me that not only does he not have enough money to pay me, 
He doesn't have enough to finish his recording? I nodded. Carpenter looked away toward the plasteel wall that looked out into the universe. Son of a bitch, he said. He paused for a second, then looked back at me. You know I backed his fundraiser? At the highest level. I blinked, utter surprise forcing me to silence for several seconds as I processed what Carpenter had said. I flashed back to the days when Jason had been running his fundraiser. The highest tier had been for 500, which meant... He owed you 4,000, and you gave him 500 more in the fundraiser? Carpenter nodded. You didn't add it to his debt, just gave it? He nodded again. Why? Carpenter shrugged. What can I say? The man plays a mean keyboard, and he's got a great voice. No argument there, except it was another indictment against Jason, because if he had realized that Carpenter had given him 500 in the fundraiser, surely that would have cued something in his head to question what was going on with the debt he owed. But then again, I had already established that Jason wasn't so smart, so I shook my head, one thing at a time. Can we agree we would both rather see him finishing his album and getting it out to the world earning money than see him try to breathe a vacuum? Carpenter raised an eyebrow at my fortright statement, but he nodded. He had a distinctly curious expression on his face. So how about this? You front him the rest of the money to finish producing the album and to make good on the rewards to his backers. Carpenter opened his mouth to object, no doubt, but I held up a hand before he could say anything. Hear me out. He shut his mouth, though he did not look happy. You manage him while it's being finished. Make sure he keeps on the straight and narrow. Then, when it comes out, you get the proceeds, both revenue from royalties and from concerts, until his debt is paid. Plus, let's say 20%. I raised an eyebrow. Simple interest. Carpenter snorted, but he made a gesture that said, keep going. After that, you get 40% for the life of the album. Carpenter sat silently for half a minute, pondering. Then he shook his head. That's a lot of risk to take on my shoulders. For all you and I know, the album might not earn anything beyond what it already has. Then Jason works for you until his debt's paid with interest. I raised an eyebrow. Simple interest, I said again. And again, Carpenter snorted. I continued. But I think neither of us believes it won't do well. If you add a little bit more funding for marketing and the surrounding systems, it might just catch on big and then... I left the rest unsaid, but spread my hands and raised my eyebrows at him. The corners of Carpenter's mouth were beginning to turn upward slightly. That's more money out of my pocket, Suresh. I'll need more of a cut on the back end. How much more? Eighty percent. I shook my head. Fifty. Seventy. Sixty. Sixty-five. I hesitated, then nodded. Done. Carpenter leaned back in his chair and inhaled, then let out a long, slow sigh. This could turn out to be a good thing, he said. I run Jason's musical career, get most of the proceeds. He raised an eyebrow. This goes well. I might open up my own label, hmm? I shook my head. Nah, this is just for this one album. After that, he's on his own. Carpenter's satisfied expression dropped a bit. Not sure I like that. He's not exactly a reliable man. Once I've made the investment to get him off the ground, I don't want him screwing it up in later efforts. That's between you and him. Later. If he wants to sign on with you again in the future, fine, but for this deal, I'm not committing him to anything further. What, you don't trust me? I didn't answer, just looked at him. Truth was, I didn't trust him. And though Jason and I weren't friends, I had no intention of signing him into indentured servitude to this man. Paying him back and giving him a piece of the action for his trouble? Sure. Forcing Jason to work with him forever? Not a chance. After a few seconds, Carpenter shrugged. Fine, he's free to do what he wants after this first album, as long as I get paid back with interest first. I raised an eyebrow and chuckled. Simple interest, he added, sounding amused, but he held up his finger. If he starts to produce his second album before I get my money back, I get the same cut of the second. That seemed fair, I nodded. Agreed. 
Well, Carpenter said, and moved to stand. I suppose all's well that ends well. Not quite, I said, not moving. Carpenter paused, then settled back into his seat. He eyed me sideways. What else is there? My cut, I said. His eyebrows rose. He's not my friend, I said. I'm only doing this because I don't want to see him spaced, and I like his music. I think I should get a finder's fee. Carpenter's lips turned downward slightly. How much? Ten percent. So I only get fifty-five. There was the beginnings of anger growing there, and I hurried to clarify before that anger began to blaze. No, no, you get your sixty-five. My ten percent is on top of that. The anger fled, and Carpenter nodded in understanding. So sixty-five to me, ten to you, and twenty-five to him? I nodded. But if it's all the same to you, I'd prefer he not know about my cut. Carpenter just looked at me for a moment, then said, So he thinks I'm getting seventy-five, but in reality I'm kicking back ten to you. And then in subsequent albums, if we continue working together, I shrugged. Like I said, that's between him and you. I don't want any part of it after that. If you two decide to keep working together, give him a 10% raise to sweeten the deal. Or keep the 75, doesn't matter to me. Carpenter burst out laughing. Then he held out his hand, and we shook. I didn't push far enough this time, and left feeling like my fingers had been broken. 75%? Jason's voice was higher pitched than normal disbelief arguing with relief and then with resistance as he responded to my summation of the negotiation with Carpenter. Sorry, man, I said as I unholstered my gun and slipped it into its clip beneath the desk and settled back down into my chair. He was rather irritated with you. I tried to get him less, but uh, I spread my hands helplessly. Best I could do. Jason nodded slowly. Yeah, I guess so. He looked away from me toward the vid screen, which he had turned to a sitcom while I was away. He wasn't really watching it, just looking at the flashing images as he thought for a second. Then he said, Still, it sucks he gets so much. I was thinking this would be my big break, you know? Yeah, well, it beats being a fugitive. Or sucking vacuum. Jason blanched and looked back at me. He nodded again more quickly this time, that's for sure. He drew a deep breath, then rose. Thanks, man, I really appreciate the help. You're a real friend. I didn't let my skepticism show about that. We hadn't really been friends even before this incident, so I just made a vaguely dismissive wave of my hand. It's no big deal, just happy you'll get to produce your album. I paused, then added, and keep breathing. Jason shook his head. No, man, I mean it. You really saved my ass. He bit his lip, thinking for a second. Then he nodded to himself, coming to a decision of some sort. Look, I don't have much money, but how about you take 10% off of what I make from the album? I blinked. I hadn't truly really expected he would make this kind of offer. But as long as he was, you're getting 25%, so you mean I get 10% and you get 15 or I get 2.5% and you get 22.5%. Jason looked askance at me, then he shook his head. 2%'s bullcrap, you deserve more than that. Straight 10. So Carpenter gets 75, I get 10, and you get 15. That doesn't seem fair to you. Jason snorted. Like you said, without you, I wouldn't be getting anything. Spreading my hands, I leaned back in my chair and put on my deepest look of appreciation. Jason, I really don't know what to say. Don't say anything. You saved my ass, man. Thank you. He extended out his hand. We shook, and he left my office. As the door closed behind him, and the lock clacked back into place, I considered that this had turned out to be a pretty good day all around. On instinct, I opened up my invoicing program again, then swiped Mrs. Gorant's file open. Pretty sure she deserved a discount. This time. Okay, so part of where this story came from... As, as I've been a writer, I'm learning how writing contracts work, particularly with novels, and learning how uh, movie adaptations and licensing of rights work, and learning more about how 
the music industry has treated its uh, artists <laughs> over the years, man, artists get screwed a lot, whether writers or musicians or you name it. And uh, yeah, it's a bad scenario. And I also, as you know, I've been doing some Kickstarter stuff. And when I wrote this in 2019, I had, had I, I had done a couple of Kickstarters. I got the Kickstarter for the, the second Glimmer Veil book, audiobook, uh, Outdweller. Uh, I successfully hunted that uh, back in, I think it was 2019 or t late 2018. Uh, I'd have to look at it again. Um, but then we uh, have done more crowdfunding since then. So riffing on crowdfunding and the way artists get screwed and it sort of flowed from there. I uh, hope you like it. I liked in, in uh, liked writing it. I think this uh, character Suresh is kind of a fun dude, a little shady, but also not completely. And that carpenter guy is. Uh, I, I like him too. I, I just like the story. Hopefully you did as well. If you did, tell all your friends and neighbors about what we're doing here, and uh, about the great challenge stories that we're going through, and what we're doing next week. Next week is another science fiction story it's called Terran New Year and it's kind of a sci-fi romance teen sci-fi romance thing because it's about a girl who gets asked out to the Terran New Year's Eve party on their off-world colony and there's great resentment against Terrans because they're the overlords who are oppressing the local populace and there's a bit of a thing going on there uh so that'll be fun come back next saturday and we'll read it uh let's see what else is going to be going on this week i am tomorrow finishing up the final proof of um, the ebook of campaign season and we'll be getting that out to backers from the campaign uh by the end of the night tomorrow night that is the commitment i've made and so that's what we're going to do um paperbacks will be going out to the backers in the next couple weeks after that and the book itself will be released to the wide world on august 15th so we're getting all that squared away um doing a little reformat uh reformatting of a couple things in the rest of the glimmer veil series just to accommodate it i have a book one through three compendium that's been out there for a couple of years now i'm going to put put a books four through six compendium out as well let's go with that so that'll be good and as well and i think i'm going to do a kobo exclusive because thing about um amazon and barnes noble and all those places uh, the maximum royalty is in the rent you can only get the maximum royalties from 2.99 to 9.99 for your ebooks but kobo doesn't cap it so it wouldn't make monetary sense to me to put a all six books out in a uh omnibus on Amazon, he's like, it only charges $99.99, and then it was a, my, way too much of a discount more uh, per book, more than I'm comfortable doing. On Kobo, though, can put it out for like 20 bucks or something. And so that makes more sense. So you know, play to play to the Kobo strength. So I'll have the, the two omnibuses, one to three and four to six, on the uh, everybody, every place else, and Kobo. And on Kobo alone, I'll just have the all, full omnibus with all six novels and all five short stories in one thing. So that'll be cool. So in the next two weeks before the 15th, while that while uh, we are getting ready for the release of campaign season, I'm going to be formatting, getting those out as well, as well as finishing up the paperback formats and 
restarting the new great challenge because that's going to start this week and continue getting back to work on warfare qualified which is an Icarin confederation navy novel that i started a couple years back and paused on when i got distracted by everything uh, 60 some thousand words into it and it's not even halfway done so it's me a big thick book uh, it's based on you know sort of autobiographical because it's about a junior officer who shows up to his first ship and is getting qualified um riffing off of some of the experiences i had and experience as a junior officer doing that same thing and some other experiences some of my friends had and just applying u.s navy structure and um culture and procedures to an extent but general philosophy of activity and to try to make it as realistic a ship experience as possible so it's gonna be awesome when i finish it uh we're gonna be kickstarting that uh hopefully uh i'll probably do that towards the end of the year uh probably should be able to have it done ready to go end of the year early next year depending how much i actually go down and do the work there's a lot going on so i uh don't have a firm target date on that yet uh end of the year for certain as well, I'm also going to be uh, putting out some more uh, smaller bundles of short stories. I got 52 stories here. Um, I've got a couple 10 packs of stories out already, and I've got a bunch of other stories that are not in this 52 that are also not in those 10 packs that are also not published yet. Um, then I'm going to bundle up two or three more 10 pack stories to uh, 10 pack collections, and probably I'm thinking about doing a Kickstarter for those as well, probably in the fall. So those are the two closest things. The good thing about the 10-pack stories is they're already written, so I don't have to write them. Uh, so we can focus on the new Great Challenge short story a week and on Warfare Qualified for the probably the rest of the year, and then I'll move on to the other novel that I haven't finished yet that I have on the back burner. <laughs> and we'll get that finished probably early next year. But that is book two. It's going to be uh, part of a series, so I'm going to hold off and get the final book in that series done then I'm going to re-release. Uh, th what this is, this other book is the follow-up to my first book, Masters of the Sun, which I, uh, the biggest mistake you can make as a writer is what I did, write book one, and then move on to other things, never go back and do book two. So book two is what I'm doing there. So I'm going to probably give me a three-book three sequence to finish that story up. And when i am got that done, when I've got that ready to go, uh, next year, probably middle of next year, probably hopefully, um, re pull masters off, recover, retitle, re-release all three of them together, or in a the rapid release format that indies like to do, um, and finally get that loop closed. So that's the plan for the next year. Or so we'll see how it works. Um, anyway, thanks for sticking around. Thanks for liking these stories. By all means, since you like these stories. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, to the YouTube channel, and the Odyssey of the Rumble, wherever the heck you are. Tell all your buddies about it. Go buy MichaelKingswood.com. Sign up for the email list. Go by MichaelKingswood.com slash store. Buy books. Go to go to the website, MichaelKingswood.com, which I already mentioned because I'm you know mentioning it again. You can be a member of the site. A couple bucks a month. Help keep the lights on around here. But whatever you do, come back next week. And at some point, I'm going to recommence the streams. I keep saying I'm going to recommence daily streams, and I haven't been doing it just because I've been busy. And But I've got a number of topics I want to talk to. 
you know it's the beginning of a new month i guess we'll do it this week anyway so we'll start that too so come back for that come back next saturday until then don't do anything i wouldn't do be good because i would do that thanks for listening to Storytime with michael kingswood for information on all my books visit michaelkingswood.com or visit my web store at ssnstorytelling.com. My books are all available through all the various e-tailers, but buying direct from me nuts me the most profit. For information on new releases and other special deals in the future, sign up for my newsletter on my website. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyrighted by Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music is copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved.